Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled, It's Okay, Everybody's Different, and our author is Paula E. Gelbach. Paula, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Your book is charming and beautifully illustrated. Great stories. I would say that this probably is designed for children's read. What was your motivation in putting this book together? My motivation was in trying to get the word out to reach children uh, that the very youngest, because that's when it's important to start, about liking one another, liking one another's differences, realizing we all have differences, and establishing the groundwork for acceptance of one another so that as they get older, um, the bullying might be greatly reduced. Oh, and dislike of one another. Would you call this also a celebration of differences? Definitely, definitely. I don't think we often think that being different is uh, always such a good thing. But in um, in the one, uh, they have a good time with it. In the first uh, poem uh, that's called "The Purple Bottomus," he has a purple bottomus, and he's so happy and proud of it. But no one else does. But they have something else that they're just as proud of, and they end up all enjoying one another and appreciating one another's differences. And it's done in a first-grade way (laughs) or a second-grade way that they can enjoy it. And actually, younger people can be read to, and it's a a picture book. And Purple Hippopotamus is really exciting. He's really kind of handsome fellow. Is that your main character, the Purple in there are three stories in it's okay everybody's different Good. and the three stories are just different stories they're not hooked together in any way with the exception of the theme and so in the first one yes my grandson at the time he was four my youngest grandson whispered grandma do you know have you heard of the hippopotamus with the purple bottomers well, it cracked me up at the time. I didn't ever come out with anything like that. And I started to think about that. And I remember in my teaching career how children were different. And it just sort of clicked with me. So I took off on that. That was the key to the beginnings of of the, of the story and of the book. And you used animals, which are charming to look at. You've done a done a great job in steering the uh, the illustrator to do a, a fabulous job. Why did you yes, use Why did you yes. use animals instead of children as characters in your well, book? Well, it's much easier to get across a difficult, could be difficult uh, topic or a pointed topic or something with animals because you don't children don't personalize animals, but they are them, you know. And so um, it, it just seemed the, the natural thing to do. And all of my stories uh, in my books are all animals. And I think that is important. 
And it took me quite a while to find um, in fact that was a big hold up. The book was really put together a couple of years before it was uh, submitted to Ex Libris um, because of the, looking for the um, illustrator uh, that that could do the kind of picture that I sort of envisioned would go well with the uh, text. You mentioned bullying as a, a topic. Did you touch on that specifically in your book? Yes, I did, but a very gently a gentle uh, introduction to this one. The first story is a, a poem about the hippopotamus with the purple bottomus, and the second one is about a um, a wasp, actually, who has a friend, the ladybug, and his mother. But he has a group who suddenly just start to pick on him. And he doesn't know how to handle this. And it's very upsetting because his friends are all in the group. But he goes, the main, the main theme on this one is to have children understand that it's okay to go and talk this over with your mother and make sure that she knows what's going on and take her advice and um, or tell a grown-up, uh, even a teacher or someone that the child feels comfortable with. And, of course, this little bug has another little bug, the ladybug, who is his best friend, who instills in him his worth, tells him that, well, they might not like you and they might be picking on you, but you are so important to me and to other people because of your kindness and your caring and all that, and those things uh, mean a whole lot, so don't ever lose those, you know. So we've, we've supplanted the... Uh, bad with some good <laughs> Fabulous. Uh, ideas that uh, so it begins that way um, and that's about the substance of, of that one um, that that kind of um, differences the difference between the bully and and uh, and mother's approach and the wasp and all that business. when they're reading this book and and when others are are viewing it I'm sure that you have an underlying theme and maybe many underlying themes. Do you reinforce those in the uh, in the teaching process of writing this and telling the story? Yes, definitely. Well, when you say teaching, I'll, I'll start with the third. The third story is about the differences in teaching. Um, I was taught as a youngster um, to be fearful of uh, the art lessons that my teacher presented. She was the type that had to be exactly the way she wanted it, not the way we could produce it, hmm. the way she wanted it. But I learned that if I ever became a teacher, and this was like in first grade, I was going to make sure that anybody who worked hard's work was accepted. And um, uh, and so that involved that came very heavily to play in my own teaching, to accept what children do. And there's always a way to to praise it and to be thankful for it and admire it, you know. But somebody else might not think so, but that's okay. That's different. They do something different, but this is valuable too. And um, so I did use it in my teaching, even before the book. I'm a retired teacher now. But I never forgot that, and it was so important. that It just stuck, you know, stuck with me. And... Uh, I'm trying to, uh, I'm, I am not just trying, I'm writing a second book that is, not, is a companion. It's not a serial or a, a book group. 
it, it does have animals, but different animals. There are some similarities, like the three stories in it, but the um, this carries the theme of bullying a little further so that older children, well, not that much older, another grade, might <clears throat> grasp it, uh, might enjoy it a little, maybe a little bit more uh, by grasping it more um, when uh, certain uh, bullying scene, bullying action takes place and how that is handled and how the different animals realize. That book is called, it isn't out yet, but it's called, it's with the sleepers, so it'll be coming out, Let Your Light Shine, and it's okay, let your light shine. They both start with it's okay. Beautiful. And, uh, and, and if we let your light shine, that means that you are doing good things, and hugs are good things, and they turn around bullying like you'd never believe. Fabulous, <laughs> fabulous. Well, those are important stories and, and important values that need to be instilled in small children, and hopefully it'll carry right. through to their adulthood, and they'll also retain those values and that value system. Who do you think is going to enjoy reading your book? I know it's directed towards children, but I, I have a sneaky suspicion teachers and maybe adults might enjoy sharing this. Oh, I do think so. I think, it, yes, I think it's fun for uh, adults who like, like the stories. And I think they have a good feeling and teachers in that it's telling something that they believe in, too and that they want to get across. It's another means. There are many means to get to an end, and this is one one method that by reading the story and maybe even having a, oh, the adults would call it a seminar or something. We'd call it Bible school or a series of, and then make bulletin boards. That's what the, uh, there is a workbook for the for the first book that's finished, and it, uh, it gives ideas for discussion for mothers at home if they're reading to their children before they go to sleep uh, or whenever, as well as teachers in the classroom, activities, I mean, artwork, as well as discussion questions, as well as making puppet shows. You know, animals make wonderful puppet shows. Absolutely. And, um, all kinds of activities. And that that workbook is on, um, it can be found on the United Church of Christ resources uh, website. Excellent. They they specifically asked me for that. I didn't uh, put that out necessarily. I did it independently with my sister. There are two names on that. Beautiful. She's also a teacher. But... um, but anyway, I just sort of mentioned that that's a, and that, I don't know, is, uh, you go look it up on the, um, United Church of Christ, uh, website for, for resources. They have a lot of different things and read about it and how it's put together and how it might help. You don't even have to have a lot of them because, well, you can because they're not that expensive, but, you just have one and copy pages out for your classes. Well, you, you've mentioned this. Uh, you've mentioned a, a church entity. Is this a story that possibly could be used in Sunday school lessons or Bible school themes? Definitely. The one that you read does not mention school, uh, Bible school, or any church or any denomination or anything. But I, it is such. It is written in such a way that it can be used that way by the teacher in uh, picking it up from some, you know, using it in their own Bible school or Sunday school. 
and all you need to do is add the belief system that you, um, it fits. I mean, it just fits. So your book is motivational in addition to being inspirational. Right, exactly. How would you introduce this book to someone that doesn't know you or know of your, your history, but might be a good suspect in reading your book? Oh, my. That's, that's a learning experience in and of itself, you know. Just because you feel you can write good books doesn't necessarily you're a good introducer. But I've learned that if you're passionate about what you do, it sort of just comes. I would say that uh, in this day and age, with so much conflict and all, we need to start with, with children who are as young as possible can understand things that way. And the earlier we can get to children to accept people and like people, the less bullying, maybe the you know, the less war we'll have. Who knows? I like to, you know, think way beyond things. Eventually, not in my time or your time maybe, but it's a start and it's an exciting one and it's a fun read and children will like it and in different grades in the beginning kindergarten first or second, they'll get different things out of it. The older they are, the more they can discuss uh, the acceptance of their differences and what they contribute to uh, the process of the world and getting along. This is a fun-looking book. Uh, the illustrations are spectacular and the stories and the verses are wonderful. The title of the book is It's Okay, Everybody's Different. Uh, was there anything challenging about putting your book together? Yes. Finding the illustrator that I felt carried out the theme I wanted to have carried out. And I asked everybody and their kissing cousin if they knew of a good illustrator. And for about two years, I, you know, followed up all kinds of leads. And a lot of them, of course, were too busy. And a lot of them were uh, out of my price range and so forth. But I, by just by accident, um, one of my college classmates, two of them, and myself were having lunch one day, just about a year ago now, and um, I asked them, and the one gal went to church with an, with this artist, and she said, I wonder if she'll do it. Do call her. And so I did and sent her a copy of the book, and she also has different, she explained it, diff, 10 different grandchildren. And um, it, the theme stuck with her. Beautiful. Uh, her differences were more like um, autism, and uh, well, and she found that she had twins, and she had uh, Down syndrome, and you know, different things like that. Right. And uh, getting along that way, and ex- one child, one grandchild accepting another grandchild's. Uh, inability to do certain things or, or what, was very important to her, and uh, she too was very active. In the, it was very, it was it was a godsend. It really well, was. Beautiful. After all, I was about giving up, but I think she portrays that somehow. Her uh, illustrations. Are, uh, yeah, her illustrations are are not only uh, nicely detailed, but they they have that whimsical value that maybe a child might have had his hand in crafting the artwork. Paula, is there anything relating to the last segment of your book about teacher Katie that had a lasting impression on your choices and your style of teaching when you became an educator? My teacher, when I was in the first grade, who terrorized me. The last session of the day was art. 
we all sat around a table, and she put up something like a jar of pussy willows or something in the middle of the table, and we all had to draw it, and had to look just like the pussy willows. So I learned at an early age, and I couldn't draw those pussy willows, mm-hmm. look like pussy willows or anything. <laughs> and I was the last one to leave most days. Wow. I mean, she didn't have pussy willows every day, and some things I could draw better than others, so I got home a little bit not too late. <laughs> Mother was yes. worried, and I was coming down the street crying, and I, but in that day, parents didn't go to school and talk to the teachers like they do today. I don't think that would repeat. First of all, I don't think teachers would do that so much today. That was before all this wonderful teacher education and good teachers that we have. Um, but that was long ago. But I, but it made me, I think, a better teacher in, in reverse because I was aware that not everybody can do what the teacher <laughs> puts forth or can, does not learn in the same way. Like mm-hmm. Some learn through hearing and better the lesson heard or, re- or read or read to them. That's a hearing thing. And so that bordered on that and I think helped me. Is that the question you asked me or am I off the track? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well. I, uh, uh, it, it helped me in my own teaching. Beautiful. So Katie... Um, it became me as a as a the polar bear teacher. Fabulous. And then, so that's that's a kind of autobiographical a little bit. Well, thank you, <laughs> thank you for sharing that background uh, story. Uh, the title of this book is "It's Okay, Everybody's Different," and our author Paula E. Gelbach. Paula, where can we get copies of your book? Um, Ex Libris is the publisher, and they have. Um, uh, Barnes and Noble has uh, it available on uh, as an ebook, and uh, of course at Amazon they have it. And uh, you can always call Ex Libris, um, and they would send you where you needed to go. And they can keep in contact with you on. Do you personally? You personally have a website, don't you? Yes, I do. I just, thank you for mentioning that, so that that's uh, and, that's a good thing. And where where is your website? What is the address for that? I, I don't have it in front of me. I'm sorry. That's okay. I think I believe I've located it. It's paulagelbach.com. And that's spelled G-E-L-B-A-C-H. Thank you. I'm sorry. Not a problem. You can tell I'm older. This, this uh, Internet stuff doesn't come first. Oh, what's on Internet? <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like something to keep your hair in place. Okay. <laughs> That's okay, Paula. You've done a wonderful job, and thank you for joining me today. I thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. All right, for Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere 
to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Demand Healing, the Impolite Study of Mood and Ego Remission. And our author is psychotherapist and author, Russ Hoover. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Glad to be here. This is uh, an intriguing idea uh, the idea of a demand healing certainly grabbed my attention. What is the purpose of the title, and how did you get inspired to put this book into print? Well, uh, the book is on uh, psychotherapy, basically, uh, Jay, and um, uh, I, maybe my credentials, but probably could speak to those just a little bit. Uh, my first uh, 15 years in practice, uh, I worked, uh, I was employed at the uh, local medical college here, A.T. Still University, where I taught uh, interns and uh, medical interns and externs and psychiatric residents, as well as uh, graduate students from the, the university, which is Truman State University here in Kirksville. <clears throat> and, uh, and during that time, you know, like the psychiatric residents, they had to have 500 hours to complete their residency. But at the same time, uh, uh, the, the situation was fairly good because I had a lot of practice I was doing then. So, uh, you know, I'm not just somebody sitting out here <laughs> who's never had much acquaintance with it making some kind of statement here. Uh, you know, I've been in practice. I've seen thousands of clients and patients in, in therapy. So uh, that's kind of my, my, my background. So uh, what, was your, what was your question there? <laughs> Well, I've forgotten my question now that you've okay. mentioned it. I, I think I've been on the couch too long. I was just asking. No, I haven't been. I'm sorry, Russ. I was just asking what motivated you to put this together. I understand your your approach is a little bit revolutionary. Uh, why yeah. did you decide to, to put this into print? Well, um, knowing a lot about the different psychotherapies, uh, I um, just uh, you know I thought, felt that it was kind of, well, I kind of wanted to write about some of the things I had discovered. So my, 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 actually, I, I would say I've discovered my own little brand. I'm, I'm a founder of my own little brand of psychotherapy. But, of course, it's based on what I've known about uh, therapy generally and what I've, what I've taught about it. I think one, another thing that kind of inspired me, not only, you know, I, I know about this stuff, I better write about it and let, you know, let other people know, is to, you know, pass on a little bit of what uh, I, you know, I've learned um, and, uh, you know, people have helped me get through school, helped me get where I'm at, and, uh, I, you know, I think I'm obligated to some degree to let people know what I'm, what I'm able to do and what I've found out. Expand on the term demand healing. What does that exactly mean? Well, uh, as I say in the preface there, uh, that can mean a number of different things to different people. I, would, I don't know, like, the average person might see the book. I kind of wonder what they would think that might mean. They might think it means that you're demanding a certain kind of procedure or something <laughs> but um and you know that's i would say that i'm not going to complain about that kind of interpretation but basically the the idea is um uh, and maybe we can get into some of this is the, the therapeutic procedure uh I'm, I'm explaining how to use a particular kind of information like demand 
and the man is something with which is said with a lot of uh, let's say absolute certainty. Actually, in the uh, uh, copyright page, I, I define demand and also healing. So we got demand, which is a statement which is put in very uh, what well, absolute kind of terms, and uh, then that is used. That kind of a powerful information is used in uh, a healing. And uh, healing is a term that uh, uh, is uh, technically, I mean, I, I think it means a lot, of, a lot of things to different people, but uh, it's a, a cure that's um, based by on the body's own mechanisms. In other words, you're augmenting the client's uh, own uh, healing processes. And uh, it's kind of interesting that the uh, medical college of work was A.T. Still. This was his home uh, base. I don't know if you know, he started osteopathic medicine. And, of course, their original concept was self-healing, you know, right. augmenting the body. So it was kind of in, in, in conjunction with that, although I'd say psychotherapy generally is kind of a, a self-healing. Is there anything... Uh, this this book uh, sounds as though it might be a little complex for regular folks like me. Is this designed to be a supplement for students and maybe current mental health workers? Or is it a little broader than that? Well, I would say, Jay, it's a little bit of both. But uh, you know, I think um, people that are associated with the medical field uh, would... Uh, and I think um, average consumers, at least maybe they have an average reading, they could probably get a, a lot out of the first section. The first section of the book really is just a, a critique. I'm saying, hey, why do we need another system of psychotherapy? And I'm saying, you know, here's some of the, some of the way that the current therapies work, which are really, uh, one of the criticisms I make, for example, in one of the sections is that uh, a lot of the therapies are, are really treating the effect rather than the cause. They're not going after the cause; they're going after. The but right. back to your back to your question. Uh, it, I think probably basically, especially section two of the book, section three. There's three sections, and the section two and section three would be very good for, and really probably is made for students of therapy or practitioners now, or maybe physicians or other uh, professional people that might be involved with the, with the mental health field. I love the title of your first chapter, which, uh, since I'm Canadian, I uh, gravitated towards getting around Seattle with a perfectly good map of Saskatoon. Uh, evidently a little bit of humor and tongue-in-cheek interpretation on some of your observations. Yeah, one of the things I even say in the, in the book, I think it's in the first section, I mentioned that uh, to, to make it digest a little bit easier, I use humor. And I, I kind of use humor throughout the, the book as much as I can. I think some of it's kind of subtle, but it's. Uh, I think humor is a good mechanism to get people interested in reading. So uh, uh, also I thought that might help it be more less seem less technical. And if you can say something in a funny way, then that, you know, that can be... Uh, a lot of times that can stir people's interest. Yes. Might it, beyond. It certainly can, yes. Is there anything about your book that's radically different? Uh, your title and your approach appears to be radical. Right. Let me just say the approach is really totally new, and really the centerpiece of the book is Section 2. And in that section, I'm just I'm just explaining the, the basic functions of mood, how it works, and uh, basic properties uh, I have in that section, I, uh, which I call the laws of botheration. And botheration is a, is a term I used the word bother rather than some more technical term like desensitization. Um, 
<clears throat> because I think most people understand what bother is. <laughs> so, so we've got these laws about, actually there's three bo- laws of botheration. But it's just basic, it's like, like the subtitle is the advanced study. So it's a, it's a more in-depth study of mood. And I'm I'm saying these ideas that are presented are uh, you know they're they're you can't find them in any other book. Let's just put it that way. So it's just kind of basic, simple uh, kind of things about mood. For example, let's say if I told you a joke, let's suppose it was really not just an ordinary joke, but it was a joke you found really really funny, a super joke. How would you know it was that funny? Hmm. I have no idea. He would laugh involuntarily, wouldn't you? Well, I mean, if it there was you the go. Funniest joke you ever heard. You'd, you'd be, you'd have a hard time holding it back. So, just a simple example like that, you can say, "Well, mood occurs involuntarily," and the funnier the joke was, the harder you would have a harder time you'd have preventing your laughter. Tell mm-hmm. the other thing about mood, and that is the the more intense the mood the harder it is to uh, not express it or, or give yourself away. For example, if it was really, really funny joke and it was inappropriate for you to laugh, you'd probably say you'd have you know, a um, hard time not laughing or at least letting people know you're laughing. You have to turn your head or something. We, we forget that mood isn't just some uh, you know, empty thing. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's got substance to it. It's got an anatomical response. For example... A really funny joke, you might see that people's eyes are watering, their their face can flush, you're having, uh, you know, you're having these hormonal, these, these uh, transmitter effects that are causing these things in your body. You have a, probably a surge of uh, transmitter, neurotransmitter called dopamine, which would be pushed in a little bit with uh, some norepinephrine. So, I mean, those are, those are going, those are systemic responses. Mood is really a systemic response, and it means it goes through your entire body. It gets in your bloodstream, the, horm- the hormones, you know, the, the norepinephrine. These things get into your bloodstream, and that's what you feel when you're having a mood. I was watching an interview yesterday that dealt with negative input and how it affects our lives, even though it may be benign in the way it's, it's presented to us. It, it leaves a lasting impression. How do you deal with negative impressions that are programming individuals to make wrong and maybe depressing decisions? Well, if it was a clinical issue, um, there would be a compulsive aspect to it. If it was like there, like probably every day we're seeing some things that are really not, not positive. There are things that maybe are a kind of critical but necessary for us to look at. And uh, we, we, we kind of have, I, I say we have a prejudice against bad mood. Uh, because it it serves a protective function, really. It's not, you know, it's one of it's it's a very uh, big uh, part of our you know, biology, really. Our, our our thing getting us upset, the mechanisms which get us upset. Yes, we forget about that. So I mean, we say, well, it's it serves an adaptive, protective function. Of course, the mood is is unhappy, but. In a clinical situation, usually you're having some really significant problem with their with a negative thing. They're obsessing about it, for example. They're thinking about these all the time. So you have this this chronic level of stress hormones that are running through the system, which, uh, in that sense, there it's um, it's having a, a caustic and not really good effect on your system. 
Yes. One high-profile case would have been Michael Jackson, who as a child was, uh, you know, as a teenager, yeah. had, had uh, acne issues and uh, carried that, right. that concern with him uh, throughout his life. It was still a negative impact that, that affected him. Right. One of the, some things that might be an issue for me, might not, might, they might be my own personal issues, but there, there are a lot of issues that we recall are universal, like financial issues. But the way people look, typically, for most people, that, that can be an issue. They're, you know, they're picking around on their face. Of course, you and I are saying, well, hair looks all right, but they're in there kind of messing around with it. Because uh, to the, our self-images, and really an important reason, our self-image, we want people, it's in our best interest for people to feel good about us. I mean, like, that's kind of what people, one of the things people look at, how, how they affect and how they interact and the impressions they make on others. Tell us what you would like readers to take away from reading your book, Demand Healing. I, th- I think uh, one of the, the uh, I'd really say for my own feelings, is the Section 2 and Section 3, because those are the more, uh, let's say, innovative and new things they aren't going to get in any other book. The first section is just a critique of the current mental health system, really. Uh, the, the faults that, are in, that I see in basic psychotherapies. Uh, I think one of the things people might get in reading my book is like, like if you read a book on physics, you might see how here's how gravity works. I even use an example saying, okay, gravity has this, this is the way gravity works. It bends space and so forth. I have a section on that. They say, well, you know, mood has this, the way it works. Like uh, an example I use is for people sometimes that I see as a client, I might, I might say, okay, so let's suppose you drove up to my house to visit me. You were a good friend of mine, but you see my car's been, somebody smashed in my car. It's all mangled in there. So you go in the house, and here I am sitting drinking a cup of coffee and watching TV, and, uh, uh, and I don't look like I'm bothered a bit. So why wouldn't I be bothered? And what we forget is, well, maybe maybe I don't know about it. Sometimes people say, well, you're a psychologist. You're not a cope with stuff like that. Right. Maybe I just don't know about it. So you say to me, hey, Russ, what happened to your car? I say, well, is something wrong with my car? Well, yeah, it's it's all banged in out there. So then how do I feel then? When you tell me, hey, your car's all smashed in, how would I feel then? probably not really feeling very comfortable emotionally. I'm probably getting a little bit upset at that point, right? Right. But now, then I go out, probably rush out to see how, what's wrong with my car, and then I see, well, it wasn't my car. You you had mistaken my car for another car. I see my car's all right. So now how do I feel? Suddenly, I'm not bothered, so I was unbothered. And then I got bothered when you told me that. I go out and see it's not my car, and now I'm not bothered anymore. Now, what caused my mood to go up and down like that. What caused me to be in a good mood, in a bad mood, and then back to a good mood? Caffeine. No, no, it wasn't caffeine, no. Information. I recognize it's not my car, so I see that it's not my car. So that conveys to me that there's anything wrong with my car, so suddenly now, I know you weren't lying, you just got to mix up with another car. It looked, looked a little bit like my car, but I can see my car's over there in the corner, and you didn't see it. <clears throat> So what I, I guess the, the point of that illustration is, what's turning my mood on and off from a, from a good mood to a bad mood to a good mood is not, you know, some, <clears throat> some serotonin or dopamine going off in my head. That's a secondary feature of mood. 
what is what I know. So mood is a function of awareness. That's one of the things we see. Mood is a function of awareness. But and the knowledge. first law of botheration is you got to know about it. If it's a bother, you got to know about it. It's got to be something not okay, and it has to be something that matters to you. You have those three ingredients, and once those and three the ingredients come together, I don't care who it is, you're going to be bothered. So mood is caused when those three ingredients, you know about it, it's not okay, and it matters to you. If you take one of those ingredients out, if I know about it, it's not okay, but it doesn't really matter to me too much, I'm still not going to be bothered. So you got to have those three. So I guess what I'm saying is that would be something most people would probably benefit about in their mental health daily, to know how mood works. It's not... You know, I don't take a pill to make these, these feelings go up and down. Second law of botheration is what causes mood's intensity. And that goes to the, the third part of the three ingredients, and that's how much it matters. Not just that it matters, but how much it matters. The more that it matters, the more bothered I would be. Right. I say, and uh, I say in, this, in one of the sections of the book, the rules that govern mood are more obvious as the mood intensifies. And that's the way with any force. A good way to look at mood is just a force, okay? So mood is a force, kind of like wind, uh, amperage. Uh, these are forces, uh, like wind at two or three miles an hour, we, we aren't going to be able to see the destructive properties of wind at a low, low level. Same way with mood. And the more intense level the moods are, the more uh, uh, caustic they can be to the system. So... <clears throat> Those are kind of, I think that would be a section, like section two is just an in-depth study of mood. I think a lot of people, even your average person, but especially more somebody just like a, a professional or a provider, uh, would be, um, might be very useful for them to understand these things. Absolutely. I... You can predict these things. Yeah, go ahead, Jay. Yeah, I was just uh, going to suggest you highlight for the uh, listeners perhaps the most complicated or challenging part of writing all of the uh, material you've put into this book. You've got a long history as a psychotherapist yeah. and as a as a lecturer and, and teacher and, and a, a very broad background that you're incorporating into this book. Was there anything that was challenging about putting all of that experience into one 233-page read? Um, you know, I'd say really... I, this may sound silly, but I do a lot as a psychologist. I do a lot of paperwork, psychological reports. These things are really kind of dull and boring. The book, I really enjoyed writing a lot of the book. It was just it, sometimes it was time-consuming. Sometimes I had to meet some certain deadlines. But, I mean, in general, I just, it's just kind of the type of writing I, I enjoy. I really, uh, just to say, be honest with you, I, I really enjoyed writing the book. Um, another thing, I, 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 some of the things that are so new, I kind of realized that, uh, uh, that some of these things would be really maybe kind of very important for maybe even in a historical sense for people to know. I'll give you an example. One of the things that the book comes out, and I don't know, this is, this, as far as I know, I, I'm the only one that's ever said anything like this, and that is that thought of itself is never pathological. It's never irrational. One of the questions, how do we tell an irrational thought from a thought that's just wrong? You know, if I think your, your name was Harry and it's Jay, then that's wrong. But it's not irrational. It's not something that's harmful. <clears throat> so I'm kind of looking at some of these very important aspects as they apply to psychotherapy because 
if you're thinking any thought, it's, it's just a thought of itself. You know, thought is localized in my brain up here. Mood, on the other hand, is systemic. So traditionally, there's four things they, they consider that are related to mental disorders. It's uh, abnormal perception, uh, delusional thought, uh, very gross abnormal behavior, and then emotional features. And what I'm saying in the book, all those are emotionally. The core of all the, the mental disorders is mood. And it's bad mood. It isn't good mood. <laughs> so those are concepts that you aren't going to get anywhere. And I just, to my, I, was, I enjoyed saying, hey, these are things people know. So the, the writing, I would say, uh, was really kind of fun. There was at times it was challenging. How do I say it? And how do I write it in a way that's correct, scientific, yet, yet interesting? And then I spoke earlier about you know, making things humorous and so forth as a way to help people enjoy the writing. That's a great way to do it, and that would certainly set your book apart from the rest out there, having a little humor along with some in-depth psychological profiling and, and uh, information that they can use. The title of the book is Demand Healing, The Impolite Study of Mood and Ego Remission, and our author, Russ Hoover. Russ, tell me where we get copies of your book. Well, you can get it on the Internet. Um, um, Ex Libris is the publisher. Uh, as far as I know, it's... it's and you, know, you can get it at Amazon, probably any of the websites or your local bookstore. You can have them order it. That's a great way to do it. And they can also keep in contact with you by following you on the Internet by putting a uh, search under your name, Russ Hoover, H-O-O-V-E-R. Thank you, Russ, for joining me today. Pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book has an intriguing title, California Slim, The Music, the Magic, and the Madness. And our author is Andrew J. Bernstein. Andrew, welcome to the program. Jay, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. My assumption is music is an important key to this book, which is not a novel, but an autobiographical memoir. Tell me why you decided to write and tell your story. Well, Jay, again, first of all, it's great to be here and, and to talk about Slim. You know, I lived this um, adventure 
for 18 years, and the uh, opportunities that came my way afforded me a real inside look at a real seminal time in the music business and the San Francisco Cultural Revolution. And uh, I lived it, and when it when it ended, nothing really comes to an end permanently, but I uh, was aware that those 18 years I would eventually have to write about. You also had some interaction with Jerry Garcia, a well-known figure in the music industry. Well, I did, and at the time he was just happened to be a banjo teacher around Palo Alto, where I grew up, Palo Alto, California, and I was looking to learn how to play a stringed instrument, and uh, he came recommended as, as a teacher um, that uh, he might be able to help me out. So it was before The Grateful Dead, and there was a lot of music going on in Palo Alto at the time, but it was mostly folk music, of which he was a big part. You also have had interaction with other what we'd call music luminaries or people who are well-known, even Willie Nelson. That's true. Uh, when people ask for a quick synopsis of the book, I generally say it drops in in 62 when I was 14 years old with Jerry Garcia as my banjo teacher, and it ends on the backstage uh, western set of Warner Brothers Studio in Burbank for the premiere of Willie Nelson's first movie, Honeysuckle Rose, a song for you. Amazing. Who do you think is going to find this an interesting read? You've got nearly 400 pages. I'm already interested, and I don't know the content. (laughs) Well, um, when I wrote the book, and I have to tell you, I had... uh, This is my first book that I've written, but I've been a writer, and I've done trade journal articles, etc., for years. But having known... uh, Knowing for so many years I was going to have to write this book, um, I don't think anyone really knows unless they do it, how hard it is to write a book. But the pleasure of finishing the book and having it in my hand, and Ex Libris did a wonderful job, I have to tell you. I was a pain in the neck. But the final product they produced was beyond my wildest imaginations. And your book uh, actually goes back into the 50s, if I'm understanding the chronological order of this, that is a long time back to be remembering stories and telling them. Did you keep journals by any chance? Well, um, yes, I did. The book actually drops in in 62. Uh, literally, the first page is, um, is at my first banjo lesson with, with who would become the iconic Jerry Garcia. So it covers 62 to 80, which is 18 years. And um, I spent 20 years thinking about writing it. And I traveled the world for the International Shipment Company, of which I'm vice president. So when I got out of music, I went into uh, international worldwide shipping. And I had a lot of time to spend going over my old notes and my old journals and getting and compiling this. And in 2000, I realized that I wouldn't remember as much as I needed to remember unless I really got on it. The book took 13 years, 10 years to write and three years to edit. And I was, Jay, actually able to go back and recreate the events word for word, picture by picture. And I substantiate all of that with an enormous amount of research I had to do to actually find the photographs and the posters from all the shows. And I didn't do all of them. There's no way I could have. But I worked at Fillmore for a while for Bill Graham, had one of the regular working light shows. And again, we didn't know we were making history, but I 
was able to get my hands on everything to substantiate my work. And again, a tremendous amount of work went into this. Between you and me, and don't tell anybody else, but do you have any of those original posters? Oh, I have them all. You do? And, all, and they're all in the book. Oh, I, I mean, you actually have the original first edition? I actually have edition? the originals for every show that I did at the Fillmore. Ouch. And wow. I had to license them from Bill Graham. You know, being a self-published author means you have to publish, which means you have to do all the things that the publishers would do, and which means license what I didn't own, and digitize what I did own, mm. and what I was able to get from the poster artists that assist me, assisted me for all the shows I produced. I noticed you also had a VW bus at some point in your life. Uh, any possibility that's still around? No, thank God I found a picture, but I had two of them. And uh, when we had our light show, we were on the road all through California and the West, you know, traveling with bands. A lot of these promoters, in fact, and wouldn't do a light show, or wouldn't do a concert without a psychedelic light show to accompany it. So <laughs> I had a, uh, I found a picture of one of them, which again, I couldn't believe it, but uh, it all of this brings the story together. You know, traditional publishers, if you have a lot of pictures, want you to put the pictures in compartments in the book. Right. And I told, and Ex Libris, I mean, as a self-published author, I could do what I want. I can tell my story the way I want. And no other publisher would have allowed me the freedom to tell my book the way that I told it with all the support material and backup material. The, the term or the title California Slim actually refers to you, correct? Yeah, it was a name that Willie Nelson's road manager gave me. <laughs> and he's passed away. And, you know, the other reason it was important for me to get this book done, I'm 66 years old, and these events all took place between 62 and 70, was that, you know, people people pass along. Mm. And a great number of the people, not a great number, but I was... I spent time with Willie for two and a half years between 77 and 80. <clears throat> as an invited guest, as an assistant to work on some movie um, some movie projects, but most of all as a friend. And the friendships I developed with the Willie Nelson family stand today. They're amongst my best friends in the world, and the ones who passed away, one was Pooty, who was Willie's stage manager for many, many years, and we were brothers. And he nicknamed me California Slim. And the story of how that happened is in the book. A great teaser, Andrew. Besides Willie Nelson, who would you say is the most controversial or interesting character that you encountered during that time frame? Well, there were so many. Uh, you know, and if you look at the index, somebody said if you were playing a drop-the-name-of-an-important-person game at someone's house, you would walk away with it. <laughs> And what's important about that is I didn't go looking for any of these people. I had an interest in presenting and being part of the burgeoning music scene in San Francisco. I graduated from high school with the Grateful Dead. We went back all the way. And I was at the first Dead show at a pizza parlor and in Menlo Park. They were called the Warlocks at the time. We didn't know. So to try and pick, you know, Somebody, it, 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 it's hard to do because Jerry and Willie are, you know, probably the people that have had the most influence in my life, so I'd have to defer to one or the other. But um, 
one person who kind of stood out was a guy named Osley Stanley III, who, besides being the quote-unquote acid king, was also a genius um, who put together the Grateful Dead sound and actually financed the early Grateful Dead band. And he, he passed away a few years ago in Australia, but when I was producing my own shows, he was a genius. But again, he's most well-known for being the guy that produced LSD in the Bay Area, before it was illegal, in fact, um, was that he was such such a brilliant man and so cutting edge um, in so many ways. And he ended up doing the sound for my Jerry Garcia shows. I produced Jerry later on at my nightclub and at, at um, some other auditoriums. When the Grateful Dead were off, off the road, Jerry had side bands, uh, bluegrass band, Merlin Jerry, Jerry Garcia, and I produced them all. And Osley would do the sound. And he is, and and will always be in my memory, one of the most um, creative and amazing uh, people I ever met. Tell me the story of Chet Helms and uh, what happened to him. Well, uh, at Altamont, you know, Altamont, a lot of people think of Altamont as the end of the peace and love generation. The fact is, you know, it, it was a mistake, and I was following it because leading up to it, you know, the Rolling Stones wanted to do a uh, Woodstock type event at the end of their 69 tour uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, Sam Cutler, who was the tour manager for them uh, for the 69 tour, was given the responsibility of getting this thing organized. And unfortunately, Altamont kind of fell on him because the Stones abandoned him and left him here and walked away from all the lawsuits. And, and he's a friend of mine, still a friend, a Facebook friend. And uh, I showed up at that at Altamont very early in the morning uh, with a friend of mine and naturally navigated towards helping out because they needed a lot of help and I was a known experienced promoter in the Bay Area. And I ended up on the Chet Helms family dog bus that day. Um, and Chet had taken too much of Ozzy's LSD in the morning mm. early, as did a lot of people. There were a lot of casualties by 9 o'clock. And uh, I ended up taking care of Chet. Um, not, not physically taking care of him. His wife was there, and there was people who tend to him, but he was in comatose state. He was awake. He was in a yoga position for a good six hours, seven hours, um, you know, for the most part, unresponsive. And he was supposed to be one of the people who was helping organize this. So I thought was a great guy. I knew him, and he had the Avalon Ballroom. I never did a light show for him, but um, I knew him, respected him. He was a great guy. He just took too much acid that day. He wasn't the only one. But, uh, you know, I write about that day not so much as being the end of <clears throat> the peace and love and all those things that we so bought into, and I still buy into to a certain degree, but more a, a mistake that went bad that I was glad I was there to kind of be a shepherd for Chet. In the right place at the right time, it sounds like, and a lot of strange and scary things were happening in the 60s and 70s, and it's interesting that you've chronicled them. Was there anything in this book that you would call controversial about things that well, you yeah, experienced? You, you, there is. There's a, there's a chapter where I actually, a non-music chapter, that chronicles my uh, marijuana smuggling adventure, bring 200 pounds of pot in from Mexico. And um, a lot of, you know, I'm in the corporate world now, and 
I was concerned that people would be shocked. But by the time I got this bug done and out, marijuana had been decriminalized in California, where I live. And I do have a card for medicinal marijuana. And now two states have legalized marijuana. And the country faces a um, whole new political agenda as it has to do with marijuana. I've never been a drinker. I've never been drunk. Back in those days, I had seen alcohol rip apart families. It had a negative impact on my family. And um, I, when I got turned on to marijuana, I thought, well, I'm gonna, if I'm going to do something, I'm not going to be beating anybody up. I'm not going to be making a scene in a bar and acting stupid. So, yeah, you know, this, this seems to make sense. Uh, at the time... I was standing on a moral high ground that I had established for myself that people that drank were stupid. And if I brought some marijuana back into my hometown, perhaps people would smoke that and not drink. Now, was it the stupidest thing I've ever done? Of course it was. In hindsight, does not make a great story? It's my favorite story in the book. And um, yes, it would still be considered a controversial thing, but this was not had nothing to do with cartels. These were a couple of young guys who didn't know what they were doing mm. and could have gotten in a lot of trouble. How would you introduce your book to somebody? What would you say to them to uh, get them interested? A fun read that is an honest representation of my life from 1962 to 1980. And that's really all I can do. But it was, to me, most important that I pleased myself and got these stories right because it's a history book. I even had to chronicle the set list for Jerry Garcia's shows at my nightclub on certain dates and get the set list right for Amazing. each of the shows. Amazing. Because if you don't, the dead people will find you and correct you. <laughs> yeah, and I wouldn't want to be uh, approached by a dead person. That would be well, no, it's, it's not so much that. It's, you know... I claim to have been there for the first Grateful Dead show. Right. I claim, I make a lot of claims in this book. I claim to have been a bodyguard for the Beatles in 1965. And you're right, you know, you better be able to substantiate this. <laughs> better have your act together. <laughs> you better have it. And, you know, a few people have found a couple of things. I got the name of an island in Lake Tahoe. I got the wrong bay. It wasn't on Crystal Bay. It was on Emerald Bay. Oh, amazing. But... <laughs> And I left the E out of Creedence Clearwater. That doesn't sound so bad. That doesn't sound so bad. Was that the most challenging part of writing your book? Absolutely. It, it, it was having to, number one, go back. Fortunately, I, I saved a lot of stuff, but I created the timeline on purpose. And, you know, for, for people out there who um, are struggling to write a book or want to write a book or think about writing a book, um, there is what I call the Soul Stream, and that's the name of another book by another ex Libris writer. But he character his book is science fiction. But I like that characterization of being able to get into your soul and stream it, and that's what I was able to do. This is a fascinating book, California Slim: The Music, the Magic, and the Madness. Our author Andrew J. Bernstein. Andrew, where can they get a copy of your book? Well, um, the national publicity for the book is just starting, but the book has been out for, for 10 months, uh, and it's available um, through Amazon. It's available at Barnes & Noble. Uh, 
and it's available through your bookseller. It is on Ingram, so if it's not on the shelf, and it's not yet on very many shelves, soon to be on shelves, but any bookseller can uh, arrange for you to get this book. Andrew, many of our authors have websites. Do you also have one? I do, Jay, uh, and my reviews are on there. Uh, my website is California Slim 101. Andrew, thank you for joining me today. Enjoyed the visit. My pleasure, Jay. Thanks so much. For Ex Libris on Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris on Air.